And welcome back to How It's Med, the podcast where we chat with people who are shaping the future of health tech and healthcare. Today, we have as our guest, uh, Diane McIntosh, the author of the best-selling book, This Is Depression, psychiatrist, podcast host, and so much more. My name is Jeff, and with me is Abdo. Um, and before I, I guess, trail off on a really long and rambling intro, which is too late, um, Diane, why don't you tell us a little bit about your work with podcasting? I, this is a fascinating conversation that we had off the air. Oh, boy, a fascinating conversation. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I'm a new <laughs> podcaster. Uh, my first episode dropped. Listen to me talking the lingo of podcast here. <laughs> it dropped last week. There we go. <laughs> so I, I just started one with Corey Hirsch, who's an ex-National Hockey League goaltender. And the idea behind it's called Blindsided. And it is, we are talking to elite athletes from every different area of sports. So uh, we have NFL football players, NBA basketballers, um, NHL, Tennis Association, U.S. Tennis Association. So that's all this season. Uh, we're trying to get at individuals who have lived with mental health challenges or transition, life transition challenges, because I, uh, Corey and I agree that young people and also men tend to be men particularly are less likely to ask for help and have these conversations and young people tend to look up to elite athletes. And so that's why we thought we would try this mix out and see if we can talk a little bit about their background as elite athletes, but then what kind of challenges they faced and how they were in some ways unique, but also in many ways, very similar to everyone else's challenges with their mental health. That sounds fascinating. I'm not sure how much you can share, but is there a favorite conversation that you've had? Well, one of my favorite conversations was with um, uh, an NFL football player, Julius Thompson, and he was, uh, he laughed because he wasn't, he didn't enjoy being famous and actually is in the midst of doing, I believe he's in his PhD in neuroscience right now. And what a great conversation he, he gave us. And this is typical of people who, you know, they're, they're elite athletes and they're used to trying to control their time carefully and don't want to give it all away. And so everyone starts with, we've got 45 minutes. And I believe we spent uh, two hours and could have kept talking. It was such an interesting conversation. So, uh, but all of them have been really enlightening and what I started doing for the last four or five, I think we have 10 or 11 in the can. <laughs> so, uh, we, for the first, for the last five or six of them, I started asking questions just f to everyone, the same questions. What were your greatest, what, what do you think is your greatest achievement? And also what would you tell your 15 or 16 year old self? And on the greatest achievement front, mm -hmm. I have to say every time after talking to them for somewhere between one and two hours. I knew they weren't going to say the thing that everyone would think they'd say, winning the Super Bowl or winning the Stanley Cup. And nobody let me down. Everyone said something other than that. But uh, those were really, I think, pivotal parts of the interview, as well as, you know, looking back, what would you say to that 15 or 16 year old you? So those, those pieces have become really important to me in what I do. 
to hear an elite athlete say, yeah, I won a Super Bowl or two, or I won four Stanley Cups. But the most important thing to me, my greatest achievement was something different. How about I pass the ball down to you then, Diane? What was your greatest achievement? Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, I see. I think that's a hard question. My greatest achievement is, uh, I, I would say, my children and watching them becoming adults. Uh, I have a 25-year-old son and a 19-year-old daughter and just being so incredibly proud of the human beings that they're becoming and recognizing that my husband and I parented really well together. So it feels like a real achievement to see them launching and being good people. That's the most important thing. I don't care what they do at all in life. I just want them to be happy and, and to be good people, kind people, and that's what they are. That was a very wholesome question. <laughs> but the other question then, what would you say to your 50-year-old self? Let's just get out the way. Oh man, what would I tell my 15 year old? <laughs> you know, I think we all suffer from imposter syndrome. All of us have at different times, had, well, usually it's when you're younger that you go through that period. And it's one of the things that I've loved to have that conversation with patients because everyone who has imposter syndrome, of course, thinks that they're the only one and everyone's gonna find out what a big loser they are. And recognizing that in fact, it's, it's ubiquitous that so many of us struggle with that. You know, I'm not as smart. I'm not as good at, I'm not, a, and, and actually learning about that ahead of time. I think it would be really helpful to recognize that, you know, lots of people have those feelings and yeah, you're not as good as you will be ultimately once you learn and, and, you know, I didn't learn to be a psychiatrist till I was one, let's be honest here until it's your responsibility and you're doing it every day. So learning about imposter syndrome, I think is something I would, I would tell my, my 15 year old self. So speaking about your 15 year old self, how did your 15 year old self, uh, find her way to medicine? Oh, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> how did I find my way into medicine? I did very poorly in school until I got to uh, high school my last couple of years. And I started to find my feet academically. I really struggled with paying attention, with being organized, with, you know, unless something really interest, interested me, if I had a great teacher, then I could do really, really well. But otherwise, I, I, I would say I really struggled. And then um, I found science, as weird as it sounds, and biology. And I just found it really interesting, got into university at Dalhousie, where I went to university and I took a science year and I thought, I got to do something like this doesn't feel. So I got into pharmacy. You can't do that anymore. You can't decide I got to try this out. You have to plan ahead for years. And I don't know, some kind of mix between Gandhi and Mother Teresa to get into any of these schools. And back then I just thought, well, I'll do my PCATs and I got in and I learned so much. I mean, it was such a great program, but at the end of pharmacy school, I had worked as a pharmacist throughout because I had, you know, paid for all my education. So I had to work as well. So I worked as a pharmacy technician throughout pharmacy school. And I thought, you know, I, I, I want more. You learn so much and you're, you're a chemist essentially at the end. And so I thought, 
of course, I thought I'll never get in and I could never really be a doctor because I had rampant imposter syndrome. But I applied to medical school only at Dalhousie. That's the only place I applied. And a miracle, I got in. Honestly, when they asked me, what are you reading? And I said, Clan of the Cave Bear, <laughs> which you guys probably don't even know, but it's like junk literature. It was, you know, back in the day when you had to, you did your MCAT, you just went and did them. I'd never taken a physics course yeah. in my life. So I did, <laughs> I did my, um, my MCATs without ever having taken physics and somehow managed to get, <laughs> I got through it. Uh, the MCATs were horrifying, but anyway, now it's just very different. And I, I, I worry about that because I think some really great people don't get in who should get in because it all comes down to, I think a meritocracy really, do you, what are your marks and, and, you know, do you say the right thing during your interview? And I, I'm pretty sure I'd never get into medical school now because, you know, my whole heart wasn't in it. And I, I think the average time to get in now is three attempts and man that's tough yeah i i think just going on that notion of you know times definitely changing as as you know just just from when you went to medical school uh to when i got in um i i recently didn't match when i applied to uh to specialties that i wanted to go into but you you matched to i think it was pediatrics first right what made you want to go into there and how do you end up in psychiatry? This is terrible. You're, you're, you're unearthing all of my, my challenging stories because we're digging, <laughs> deep. digging deep. I went into pediatrics because, well, first of all, I loved everything I did in medical school. I'll be honest. I could have been a surgeon. I loved everything, but I, and I really love psychiatry. But only losers went into psychiatry. That was the way that it was looked at then. And I'll tell you, so I went into pediatrics, uh, which was very, very competitive. And I got this spot. And I remember when I decided, I'm just not happy here. You know what? I don't like parents. <laughs> I'm good with the kids, but the parents. Ah! So I, I went to my program director at Dell and said, I've decided that I'm going to switch to adult psychiatry. And she said, why would you throw your life away like that? And so that yes. was the view of psychiatry was losers go into psychiatry. You know, there's a lot of people that go into psychiatry because of their own psychopathology. But, you know, it's, it's a medical profession like any other and a very difficult one. But like family practitioners, like pediatricians, our value tends to be um, diminished within and, you know, there's a lot of stigma of related to mental illness and it lives in medicine. It's an everyday challenge, the stigma of mental illness in my own practice from my peers. And that includes psychiatrists that can be stigmatizing of mental illness. But I lived that as a young resident, recognizing, you know what, my joy comes from doing psychiatry. And so finally, I just sort of had to be true to myself, transferred and haven't looked back. So then what was it like being a psychiatrist? I just found it so interesting and I had so much empathy for my patients, but at the same time, I seemed to have this innate ability not to wear other people's stuff. I took a huge amount of responsibility, wanted to make sure they had the right medications, 
was always willing to fight to make sure that they did have the best treatment and treated them the way I'd want to be treated, the way I'd want my child to be treated. But I didn't go home at night feeling other people's pain because I just felt I would be completely useless if I emotionally got sucked into everyone else's experience. I had my own life to live. You know, I have a husband and children to take care of. So it was, it was the thing I really enjoyed, to be honest. I love taking care of patients. I, because of my pharmacy background, I got good at psychopharmacology. It was my area of interest and expertise. And really it, it took a long time to learn how to be good with medications. And I feel like it's been one of the greatest, um, gifts that I've developed over time from a professional perspective is learning to do that well, learning to do it safely and maintaining my level of compassion. This sounds very heartfelt, but then can you actually expand then on uh, switch RX and how you ended up starting that? Actually, I started that as a resident, believe it or not, with my yellow card in wow. psychiatry back as a resident. Uh, I created this laminated yellow card with all of the medications and the side effects that we uh, handed out to people. And, and ba back in the day, you couldn't have a computer program. It had to be this laminated card. And then I guess it was in about 2011, I had by then moved out to Vancouver and I had become friends with Rick Precision. Dr. Precision is a PharmD, just a brilliant guy. So a pharmacist and then a doctor in pharmacy. And he was working here and I was talking to him about a new medication that had come on the market, aripiprazole, and how it's got some great, it's a uh, 5-HT, no, sorry, it's a D2 partial agonist and um, how it's different than the older uh, antidepressant include or antipsychotics, including the older, uh, atypical antipsychotics. I'm not supposed to use those terms, but I'm going to. And everyone was complaining that aripiprazole was making their patients not sleep. It was causing insomnia. And the problem is not aripiprazole causing insomnia. It's the fact that you're stopping an older drug that helped them to sleep. So I said, we should create some kind of computer program that helps people to be able to switch between antipsychotics and recognize not just the, the benefits and, and drawbacks of the new one, but also the challenges of stopping the old one. And that is how SwitchRx was born. That's, that's fascinating. So it means like that, that seems like, you know, a manifestation of your journey towards being a great knowledge translator, but you've also mentioned off the air that you also do work with Psyched Up. What is that? That sounds like a great name, by the way, but what is Psyched Up all about? So Psyched Up came, I guess I started in 2018, but uh, my cogitations on that front were over many years of doing a lot of pharma-related CME. So I will say, I'm giving a shout out to Big Pharma right now. They just saved the world. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> they just saved the world by creating these vaccines. And so, you know, they behaved absolutely poorly in the past, some worse than others. And now there are all kinds of regulations and they need to be very forthright about the data that they have, good, bad, or ugly. And so the whole pharma world has changed. But the, in order for us to get new medications and in psychiatry, let's face it, most of our medications kind of suck. 
we need new innovative treatments. And the only way we'll get them is by having a vibrant pharma industry in this country. So I, for years, have done uh, pharma talks, CMEs, always trying to be my own talks because I don't want to sell anyone's drug. I'm selling the illness. And for, for goodness sakes, treat the illness, right? Make the right, medic, make the right diagnosis and then, and then treat. So I had done that for many years, all the different companies, competing companies all at the same time because I wanted to be balanced. And then I decided, you know, I, I want to do my own thing and get at people who won't come to pharma talks. And so that's how where Psyched Up came from. Family doctors bear the weight of psychiatry in this country. Probably 80, 85% of all psychiatry in this country is done by family practitioners, nurse practitioners. So I wanted a CME program that I created, completely balanced, that people, anyone could come to and not feel like they were part of a, a pharma experience. But it's not because I don't like pharma. It's because I want to make sure that we get to as many people as possible and support them because they don't have access to care or support. That's, that's fascinating. So you're, you're taking the knowledge that you have from your, I guess, unique background, pharmacy and psychiatry, and essentially sharing the knowledge with those who can best use it. So how did you go from knowledge translation, sharing knowledge with family practitioners all the way to your current role? So that's a little bit of a weird thing. How I don't even know how I got here. I, um, I, I will say that while I talked about maintaining my compassion as a psychiatrist, there was a point where I had decided it was a, in 2018, this recognition that I have become a very burned out psychiatrist. All that fighting uh, to, you know, with insurance companies, with pharmacare, uh, I just, I, I got tired. And I'm in a profession where my patients' needs are, are great. They have often very little access. Even many didn't have a family doctor. So I felt like I had to take care of the whole person. So anyway, ultimately I decided I am a very burned out person and I don't want to lose my compassion. I don't want to, you know, you become cynical. You make mistakes when you're burned out. And so I knew all that and I didn't want that to happen. So I took a year off. I wrote a book. That's my book, This is Depression, which is written for patients in the way I talk to patients, but anyone can read it. Um, I And then I was doing Psyched Up. I was doing these uh, four or five hour lectures across the country. And one day I was going to the airport. I was in a drive through at McDonald's and I get a phone call. It's from the CEO of Dallas. And he is very interested in physical health and mental health, but mostly in innovation. How can we innovate? How can we, recognizing the challenges with access, the barriers to care, uh, how, how can we change things? So anyway, talking, I'm in the drive-through and I take this call and I send him some of my book, a piece of my book, because I was answering some questions for him. And uh, he helped me launch my book across the country, which was incredible wow. and so generous and kind and then invited me to be the chief neuroscience officer of TELUS. So all that happened in about a six month period of launching my book and then becoming the CNO of TELUS. And that job is, you know, I think most people have no idea of the presence of TELUS in health. So there's a physical health clinics and virtual care and all kinds of innovation. We have EMRs, but then also the mental health presence is massive and growing. And it's all about 
personalized, evidence-based, accessible care delivered with compassion. That's the vision that I've developed with my group, with my team over the last two years. Uh, all of the products, services, innovations that we bring that I believe can have a major impact on the quality, accessibility of care that people living with mental illness and their families have access to. Now, I think you probably have the most interesting title I've ever heard. What does it actually mean to be a CNO? Oh, it means about 8 million different jobs, <laughs> <laughs> especially during the pandemic. It's been quite remarkable. I actually led four physical health clinics at the beginning of the pandemic because there was a lot of shifting. Wow. And I'll just like put that up somewhere on the board there. Do not take over the leadership of primary care clinics in at start of worldwide pandemic because it was, it was pandemonium, I would say. Uh, but it was remarkable to see people and, you know, all of us were afraid. Nobody knew what was coming for, for these remarkable clinicians, for team members, all of them, everyone to work so hard to provide ongoing care. So that was a, a huge learning, but it, so one thing was that leadership, I was building mental health clinics and they're, they're launched now and more are coming across the country. And those are for all comers, anyone uh, accessing psychologists, social workers, clinical counselors, all of them handpicked excellent people, as well as uh, being involved in, lots of people come to tell us because they know of our presence in health and want to have some kind of relationship, products, services, you know, apps, this sort of thing. So reviewing that sort of thing, being involved in venture relationships, uh, M&A relationships. So uh, I'm everywhere. Also a big piece is innovations. What's new? I'm the chair of the medical advisory board. So we have a great group of clinicians from internally and some external uh, clinicians who can review various products and services and give their thoughts on whether or not that sounds like something that's safe, accessible, appropriate, you know, compassionate, all of those pieces of the vision. That's very interesting. Well, but then at an overarching level, what are you working towards with TELUS? The five-year vision. Well, I have a program called RAPIDS, and unfortunately I can't tell you all about it, but I can tell you about it soon. So you'll have to have me back someday. Uh, it, but to me, this is going to innovate. It's going to change the world of psychiatric care delivery in this country. And I hope all countries, uh, it's, we all. I think are aware that algorithm-based care is what has the most empirical evidence for uh, improving outcomes, right? In all areas of medicine, and that actually includes psychiatry. So I'm in the midst of developing this program. I have an incredible experience of working with a team of technical experts, all speaking a language I have no idea about. So I have, you know, tech stack folks and data folks and people who know, you know, UI, UX, so user experience and user interface, all of this uh, technical work that people are doing, but just a, an incredible team of adults who all want to change the world with me and, you know, do their job with, with so much heart. And for me, guys, even though, you know, we, we want to deliver on innovation, we want to have excellent patient care. Most important to me in my work at TELUS as a leader is that we have an incredible culture that 
there's a, a respect for each other, there's kindness, that we think about intention, right? That we, it, we're living right now where someone writes the wrong thing in a tweet and the intention is assumed by everyone and then they're canceled. <laughs> and I, this to me is horrifying and I'm so grateful that I did not grow up with social media, let me tell you. So my push as a leader is always, why don't we look always to our best selves and expect the best and hope for the best from everyone around us rather than this assumption that everyone is is out to get you or or trying to be hurtful. I give people more benefits sometimes than I probably should, but always the benefit of the doubt and always compassion, empathy. And so that has been fantastic for me is that this team that I've assembled that is absolutely incredible in in their their work skills also embodies that sort of compassion for each other, the kindness for each other, building that culture. And it's supported by TELUS. It's, it's one, you know, one of the top employers worldwide, and they have a huge uh, push towards having a strong team culture. But like every organization, there are challenges for sure. But my team, it's for me, first and foremost, that we care about each other and we take care of ourselves. That's, that's fascinating because, you know, you've been in medicine, you've, you know, you've practiced psychiatry, you've also helped design knowledge translation, you've carried it out, carried it out yourself. So how would you summarily compare and contrast the cultures of medicine and working in a telco? The reason I went to TELUS is because medicine moves at a glacial pace. I'll give you an example of that is uh, for years. It, Several years before the pandemic, I was doing virtual care with my patients. In my mind, psychiatry, psychology, it's made for virtual care. I need to see people. I want to see their emotional responses. I want to see if I, you know, the medication is provoking tardive dyskinesia, but I don't need to touch people. I do do my own IM injections, but during the pandemic, I didn't have to. And so long before the pandemic started, I was using virtual care. I was really worried about doing that. I thought about how that would affect my relationship but it, with my patients, but it turned out that all the fear was mine, that my patients actually love the fact that they didn't have to take time off work, drive, put money in the meter, have ch find childcare, whatever. And to me, it was the democratization of what I did. I, I saw policemen in their, in their squad cars. I saw uh, people at Starbucks, wherever you wanted to meet in their office, they could put on their headphones and have a, a meeting with me integrated into their day. At the beginning of the pandemic, I remember I was on an advisory board and we were maybe three or four months in and some of my colleagues were still saying, well, you can't see a patient the first time virtually. Like, well, what if you don't live within hundreds of miles of a psychiatrist? What, what are you going to, of course you can see people virtually, but what I realized from that is, and reinforcing my belief in the glacial pace of medicine is that, um, physicians create barriers. How long did it take us to believe that ADHD existed in adults, right? We have mountains of evidence that ADHD continues to be a problem in adults, but it took forever for clinicians to actually buy into the, to the science that was supporting that. We just move so, so slowly. Telcos move at a lightning pace. <laughs> so it is at lightning speed. 
And, you know, also within a big organization, you can run into slowdowns. But if your CEO, your leaders are, are, are buying what you're doing, they can make things happen fast. And I never had that experience in medicine. Medicine, trying to change minds, my God, it sometimes just took forever. Yeah, I think what's really interesting is that there's also the similarity between the two uh, environments. Correct me if I'm wrong. This is, this is my perception. It's perhaps ill-informed, but within medicine, you're able to work with uh, nurses, physiotherapists, uh, social workers, et cetera. But you also, also mentioned that um, in your line of work now, you work with data scientists, UX designers, uh, people who are experts in UI as well. So in, in those instances of multidisciplinary collaboration, have you found any differences or is the cross-disciplinary cl collaboration, you know, pretty similar? That's a, it's, it's a good question. I think that being a woman physician, and I know that seems ridiculous to point that out because more women in medical school than men and, you know, women are seemingly taking over the medical field, but I, I felt a real, I would say pressure from women colleagues, from nurses. I didn't feel like I was treated the same way as my male colleagues, for instance. And um, there, there's often this pressure with doc between doctors and nurses and other allied health professionals. I didn't like that. And I've never had that experience in my own world. Like I will work with anyone. Uh, and so I don't know if it's more... It's more the individuals in the group rather than, it's hard to make a sweeping statement, I guess. I felt that there yeah. was, that women can be very hard on each other. And I, I felt that I was other than or different as a woman in medicine. Whereas in the, um, in my current team with across the board with all, you know, medical people working with me, but as well, these tech people working with me, we're, I just see us all as just one team working towards a common goal. And I didn't feel that as much, I guess I didn't feel as much a part of a team when I was in medicine as I felt, as I felt a part of a team in the team that I've created within the telco. How's that? I'm not sure if I was clear on that at all. <laughs> it's a great answer. I don't, I don't know if I want to pry into this one, but why did they, it was, I find it very interesting that you said that you're working with a team of adults. What does that mean? Why, what spurred you to say that? Yeah, that came out of my mouth. And then I thought, I'm not gonna. <laughs> because all of them own their job. All of them are excited. They're, they're, they want to do that job, right? So I don't have to be a manager, a micromanager of any person on my team. They just go and do. And my job as leader, one of the major jobs is to, to get rid of obstacles, right? People are throwing bales of hay and pylons and barriers up in front of us all the time. And they try to remove the obstacle. And if they can't, then they come to me and say, can you help me to move the obstacle? Right. But otherwise, like I cannot tell someone who's a UI UX expert how to do their job. They do their job and they come and tell me I've done my job. <laughs> That's beautiful. Cause I don't want that. I don't want to micromanage anyone. I want to, you know, the adults in the room to be, they're hired 
to be part of a team, to work together collaboratively, to drive for outcomes. And to me, the adults in the room are the ones that they do it. I don't, there's no, you know, scorecard. Have you taken your vacation? Uh, you know, all that. They're all adults. They're going to, they're going to come through and uh, I don't have to worry about that. And that's a beautiful thing. Let me tell you. But that was a beautiful answer to a question. I didn't know where it's going to go. <laughs> <laughs> the question I actually want to ask though is, uh, what is the current issue with knowledge translation, specifically the diffusion of knowledge between clinicians? Because you, you brought up ADHD in adults and that's something uh, I have a particular interest in. Yeah. Knowledge transla translation to me was the biggest compliment I was given about my teaching that I love to take very complicated stories and make them make sense to them, to any brain. And it was the brain in particular. So I remember first learning about this whole inflammatory basis of depression. And I have the paper, a, a great big, huge sheet of paper where I just went through, a, I don't know, like 50 papers trying to connect the dots to understand where inflammation comes from the whole story about uh, pro-inflammatory cytokines and how, you know, when you have excessive cortisol with stress, how that increases pro-inflammatory cytokines and leads to the shrinkage of the hippocampus and this whole beautiful story. And I remember it was about probably 10 or 12 years ago, 10, yeah, I don't know, around 10 years ago. And I presented at UBC this, and I had read, I can't even tell you how many papers. And so I, I presented what I thought was this lovely PowerPoint talk about the inflammatory basis of depression. And a senior colleague got up after me and said, thank you for the fairy tale, Diane. That was the response. I went, there were words I had in my head that I will not speak in a family show like this, but you know, <laughs> It was, it was startling to me because I didn't make it up, right? I had it all written out and explained. Every single thing that I said has, has been shown to be absolutely the case and built on since that time. But again, it's us shooting ourselves in the foot. We don't listen to each other. Nobody can listen anyway. Now we have, we don't even have the attention of a goldfish. We have the attention span of a dead goldfish. Nobody listens, right? So I don't expect anyone's going to hear any of this because it's what going to be 45 minutes or something and everyone's like long gone, but it, we, it's that respectful listening and it's really, really tough to change my colleagues' minds once they've decided. I did not learn, first of all, the hubris of being a physician, you know, I didn't learn it in medical school. It can't be real. I've learned it myself. And so, and then if you do believe in something. Then you become a theme psychiatrist and everyone has adult ADHD. It's, you know, we have to be, we have to teach a lifetime of learning, but I worry about who's doing the teaching and sometimes not the most open minds that are, are teaching young physicians as they come in that there's, I guess, to, to be open to new to read the science that backs down. I don't, you know, it's important to have your hands on patients, but I want to know what's the science behind how that drug works. Not just that Health Canada gave it an indication for depression, but what's the mechanistically, how does that drug work? Because I'm not going to just use it there. I use psychostimulants in patients who have bipolar, who have no affect, who can't, you know, their get up and go has got up and left. So even though the, the Health Canada indication is for ADHD, I use it mechanistically in other disorders. That we don't teach 
abstract thinking. We don't think critical, teach critical thinking in the way that I think we should. See, I have a counterpoint to that because I've, I've, I've heard that, see, I, I, I can't pull up the paper. So feel, feel free to roast me if this comes out and you totally disagree. But I've heard that algorithmic care actually uh, generally guarantees the best outcomes. So how do you align those two concepts, the, the, the safety of algorithmic care with the understanding of the mechanisms behind the different tools that we have that are developed by uh, Big Pharma, et cetera? I am a compassionate and empathic person, so I'm never going to roast you on something like that. And I really like that question. So if we built an algorithm back in 1972 and we never did anything to change that algorithm, then we'd have a problem. So the idea here and what I'm in the midst of right now is creating this, these pathways that integrate the science. What, what do we know from the science? But there is a power and an importance to clinical experience, right? How do these drugs work in my hands? If a pharma company comes to me and says, you know, we got this new drug and this is how it works. Well, yeah, that's nice. But until it's in my hands, I've used it with a critical mass of patients. I don't believe anything, right? And I have many experiences through my life of pharma companies launching a drug with a belief system of the dose that works, how, how it should be used. And I end up using it at completely different doses in very different ways and having positive outcomes. So you could say, well, the evidence told you this because all the evidence just came from the pharma company and the research they did, but there is a value to clinical experience. It takes time to be able to use that because you need a, a, a critical mass of colleagues. But think about the CAMEC guidelines for depression, for bipolar. Those develop not just from the research evidence, but also from clinical experience. And a, a, a group comes together and makes those decisions with enough clinical experience to be able to actually speak with authority. I just like That's to jump in for a comment real quick, but I really like how you're approaching it the same way an engineer would approach tools in his toolbox or her toolbox. Back to you, Jeffrey. <laughs> well, it is. I mean, we all have uh, this toolbox, right? And if you look at the CANMEC guidelines, I think 25 different antidepressants are recommended, right? And first line, maybe 18, right? We don't need all to know 25 different antidepressants, 20 of them available in Canada. In my psyched up lectures, I say, these are the 10 everyone needs to know. These are the 10 that you should have really good comfort with. The rest of them, I wouldn't use. Now, why wouldn't I use them? I got good reasons, right? Effects are XR, venlafaxine XR, excellent antidepressant, but has terrible discontinuation problems. And it takes forever to titrate it. Health Canada recommended dose 225. I've never had a patient that didn't that rocked on 225 because I'm a psychiatrist, so people are always really, really ill when I see them. I have them on 300, 375, 412.5, 450. It's really hard to learn to add 37.5, so we don't need to do that. We have newer SNRIs that instead that don't have the discontinuation problems, that don't have some of those significant side effects. So there's where you have all the evidence saying great drug, right? But clinically, we got better choices and I have the rationale to explain that. So if I'm giving an algorithm, the effects are should show up as one of the options, but I wouldn't have it show up because we've got these other options that, that are more likely that the patient will actually take it. So, I mean, you, you've, you've shared so much about your perspective 
when it comes to, I guess, navigating clinical practice, navigating work with people of different backgrounds and different skill sets. If someone is in the healthcare field and does want to work with, uh, with, with a telco, with a large organization or a startup, how would you suggest that they take the first approach? I mean, you might not necessarily give a good answer in your opinion, because, you know, you've just work, worked with a telco and not a startup, but if you were to go back, um, and if you were to pursue work with an organization that could help, um, I guess, amplify your impact to patient care, how would you do it again? How would you suggest that someone younger than you could do it? That's a, it's a really good question. I feel in some way, here's my imposter syndrome coming up. I just fell into it, but Sorry. find your passion, right? And my passion was psychopharmacology. I wanted people to do a better job prescribing and, you know, no drug will work if it's not taken. So if you give someone a medication that they're not going to take, that you wouldn't take yourself, not, you wouldn't be surprised that, that they would struggle with adherence. And it's not just in psychiatry. I mean, bad in psychiatry, but every area of medicine. So my passion was that. And I, I, I blush at some of the early, uh, educational endeavors that I undertook and some of the jarring things that I said probably over the years, but it, you know, put yourself out there. If you have social anxiety, get it treated <laughs> so that you can, you can share your passion. And that's what I did, right? I, I wrote things down, you know, I, I had a patient experience where five years bipolar, she was living with bipolar, took years to get her well, older woman. She went in because she had a problem with her gallbladder and the doctor says, you're on too much medication. She stopped it and I never got her well again. And that was the, and it, I mean, that was stigma right there, right? What? Just you're on too much med. And it took me years working together to find the combo for her. And I, and she never got better again because of that doctor going, oh just that statement. And that, that's what led me to write my first post. And then I just sent it into the Huffington Post and they published it, right? It was just those things where I, I guess I just thought, well, they'll just say no you know, send it into the newspaper, they publish it. So that's what made me believe, well, other people do it. I should be able to do it and keep writing. Keep just, if you find something that's your passion, just keep going. And, you know, you, you if you, if someone says, I don't like that, okay, well, I'll, I'll cry, keep trying somewhere else. Uh, just that fighting that imposter syndrome, we're back to 15 year old Diane is saying, you know, there's, and for me, with my patients and in my book and everything I do, there is always a path ahead. You know, so many patients have come to me from colleagues from and saying, you know, my doctor said there's nothing else you can do. There's always something else you can do. There's always a creative way to take those next steps. And so that that's for me, there's always a path ahead. If this path is not working out, let's try this path. <laughs> I feel so inspired. <laughs> Um, I guess ju just so that we can close off, is there, are, are there any pluggables that you would like? Well, to I've plug? told you about my book. I, it's usually one sitting here, but anyway, it's called, this is depression for people who are depressed, love someone who's depressed, want to learn more, every medication, every kind of treatment, but also just common stuff. Like how do I talk to my friend, my loved one about, about I'm worried about them or, uh, how do I talk to a therapist, all that sort of stuff. So that's my book. Um, I also have my new podcast, Blindsided, with Corey Hirsch that just 
coming down the line and some great guests coming up that are, uh, you know, across the spectrum of, of elite sports. And uh, SwitchRx, which is, uh, we've now got into hypnotics, switching, combining, all over the place. So slowly plugging away at that. And uh, my last thing would be, be kind, for heaven's sakes. <laughs> Let's all be kind to each other. This has been a hell of a time these last two years. This uh, chronic, unpredictable stress is the worst kind of stress for our brains. And I worry about the mental health oh. of, on the either end, young people and older people who have really, really had it over the last couple of years. And so the way we get through this is through compassion and kindness and be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to this episode of How It's Med. If you liked what you heard, please download and rate our episodes on whatever platform you listen on. Also, if you have any feedback on what you just heard, we'd love to hear it wherever you listen to or on our website, howitsmed.com. That way we can create better content that suits you. Till next time, bye-bye.